This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Pressbox Access. Mark Purdy had a big influence on my own career as a sports writer, and so I'm excited that he's appearing on this show. And you're lucky, too, because in Mark Purdy, you'll be hearing from one of America's best sports writers, and he's a great guy. Mark is a fixture in Bay Area sports. He spent 33 of his 43-year career writing columns for the San Jose Mercury News before his retirement in 2017. Bill Walsh, Joe Montana, Barry Bonds. Mark will tell us about them, and he'll put us in that tiny arena on the night of the miracle on ice. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Thanks so much for being on the show. I'm at the top of my game, Todd. I'm locked in. I'm dialed in. I'm, I've already had way too much caffeine today. That does not surprise me as an ex-sports writer. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for asking. Hey, I'm going to cut right to the chase here. I'm going to tell you something in all honesty. You changed my life, Mark Purdy. Oh, wow. It's either a blame or it's a credit. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, my face is already getting red, but go ahead. This is, this is audio. Nobody sees your red face. How did this occur? I'm going to tell you this. I grew up in Newport, Kentucky, right across the river from Cincinnati. Yes. And when I was in high school, you were working for the Cincinnati Enquirer, and I would read your columns, and I would think to myself, now that's a job I wouldn't mind doing. I like to write. Mm -hmm. I like sports. And, geez, this writer, he's even got a young face. He looks kind of almost like my age. <laughs> Maybe I'll be a sports writer. And in all seriousness, Seeing you, reading you, that just changed the way I thought about what I want to do with my ability to write. And um, I think I told you that years ago and you got embarrassed, but I wanted to say it again right at the start. Mark Purdy, thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks. You know, I, I hope it, I, it turned out pretty good for you. You know, I, I've enjoyed your work over the years. I, you know, I think every sports writer probably had um, somebody that they uh, read as a kid that, um, you know, they ended up. Uh, trying to emulate. For me, it was, I grew up in Salina, Ohio, which is a real small town up on the Ohio, Indiana border by Fort Wayne. And, uh, you know, the sports editor, my hometown paper, Bob Shreluka, uh, who's still alive. And uh, wow. last time, yeah, the last time I was home, I went over to, uh, he lives in Decatur, Indiana, and I went over and visited him just to tell him thank you. Um, one thing about our profession uh, that's always been, um, I must be part of the culture, Todd. Is like people, uh, you know, guys trying to help other guys when they're young. I, I you know, there are a few screwheads out there, but um, I, I've always tried to be grateful for the guys that helped me. You know, right on and up to, you know, I did a stint at the Los Angeles Times, and uh, you know, ended up sitting the next to the press box to Jim Murray for wow. you know the Rose Bowl or a, you know certain other events, and uh, 
And I'm thinking, you know, this is the guy when I, you know, this was the guy, right? And um, when I left the LA Times to go, go back to Cincinnati to write the column, I said, well, here's my chance, right? I said, Jim, would you have, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes to talk about writing columns? Couldn't have been nicer. Gave me pieces of advice I carried with me to, through, through that whole career. So um, we're, we're uh, I, you know, I appreciated that. And, and thank you for saying that. I, you know, I'm, I, we, we were lucky guys, I think, to be writing uh, sports journalism when we did. You also had some uh, journalism advice from, of all people, Sparky Anderson. Oh, yeah. I think, you know that I, think, I think you were 21 years old and you show yes. up at the Reds yeah. game to interview 20. Sparky. So, yeah. So, Bucky Albers was the Reds beat writer. And um, he, uh, they, you know, as part of your summer internship, uh, you would accompany the Reds beat writer to, you know, see how he did his job and yeah. maybe do a sidebar or whatever. Run you know, this, or whatever, yeah. Yeah, so this was the first time I'd been there. And I, I, I was, it was I was probably 20 years old and, um, or 21, probably 20. Anyway, uh, so it's a twinite doubleheader. People may not be familiar with that concept now, but they, they used to play twinite doubleheaders. So it started like five o'clock and they played two games. Um, and it was against the Mets. And so we get there, you know, or middle of the afternoon and, and Bucky introduces me to Sparky before the game, the smart Purdy, our intern. Hi, hi, hi. You know, and, um, uh, the, the doubleheader proceeds and my job is basically to run quotes for Bucky. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and, uh, he's upstairs writing on deadline. You're yeah, getting well, uh, so now it's like late at night after the second game or the game, second game's ending, the Reds blow a lead. They, they, uh, are ahead and, uh, uh their reliever, a guy named Jim McLaughlin, uh, is uh, the reliever, and he blows. He blows the save, and wow. it's like the third save in the row. He's blown, and uh, uh, but Bucky's like, you know, right in the running and finish. He goes like, "Hey, hey let's send the kid down there and get some quotes." <laughs> yeah, yeah. He says, uh, "You know, uh, I, I'm not going to be able to go down. So you go down and ask Sparky how long. How long can he possibly stick with McLaughlin as the closer?" <laughs> and uh, you know, and a couple other questions, right? So it's late. It's not late, right? And I go down there and I walk into Sparky's office and I'm the only guy, right? Because everybody's oh. writing about the first game, right? Or they're on deadline and they don't, you know, they're just going to wrap up the second game in a, you know, four paragraphs or something. Well, you're the Grim Reaper showing well, but up. But I'm the guy, I'm the guy yeah. walking in, uh, this kid walking in and Sparky's behind his desk and he's, you know, looking kind of grumpy. And, um, I walk in and, uh, Say hi, Sparky. Hi, I'm Mark Pretty. I met you before the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you got? And I go, well, you know, I hate to ask you this question, but um, you know, how long can you, you know, that's McLaughlin's third blown save, and how long can you really stick with him as your closer? And Sparky's behind his desk, and he stands up, and he points at me, and he goes, "Let me tell you something, young man." Uh oh. And I'm 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 ready to, you know, like, oh boy, here we come, here it comes. Um, <laughs> he goes. Don't you ever apologize for asking a question like that. Wow. You're, that's your job. If you're going to make it in this business, you've got to learn to ask that question and not apologize for it because it's my job to answer that question and it's your job to ask it. Well, Sparky was telling you not to apologize for asking questions. And I wanted to ask you a question, Mark Purdy. Do you believe in miracles? <laughs> well, that's... You know, people, and probably they ask you this question too, what's the most exciting event you ever covered? And 
wow, how lucky was I, you know, in 1980. Winter Olympics, Lake Placid, New York. First, first Olympics I covered. Uh, yeah, my eyes are wide open. I go there and I, and, uh, yeah, I end up covering that Olympic, uh, hockey tournament the, that includes the miracle and ice game. Uh, still the most exciting thing I've ever covered being that. Have you ever been there, Todd? No, let's, I want you to tell us about that because, you know, most of us have not been to Lake yeah, Placid. Yeah. And so, so you're there the night that America upsets the Russians four yes. to three. And it was not for the gold medal. People think it was the gold medal. It was a semifinals. Right. And actually, it was on tape delay. Right. It wasn't even live television. Right, which I don't know that I knew that at the time. You know, you're there. Right. And you're I don't think people, you know, I re- people have seen the movie. and was like, I don't think people really understood just how isolated and how small that place was and how, like, what, a, what a bubble you were in. So you didn't really quite have, you sort of knew the way the outside world was looking at it, but you're really it's it's a very small number of people it's a small arena it's a small yeah, how big was the arena tell, tell me tell us about the arena being in there it was like a big high school gym with a hockey rink inside you know like 8500 states or yeah, something. it probably seems like 8000 people maybe maybe 8000 like that's not even a big place bleachers bleacher seats and um uh i remember we sat up in the bleachers and um and like it wasn't really a balcony. It was just kind of the extension of lower bowl, but there was a, like a walkway. And uh, I remember David Israel of the Chicago Tribune before <laughs> stood up and goes like, someone, everybody, you know, just in this instance, it's okay to cheer in a press box. <laughs> uh, but, uh, in which everybody laughed and nobody cheered anyway, but we were just so stunned. And then what was so occurring? What would- anyway, anyway, it's a one stoplight town. It's a one stoplight town. And uh, you know, it's uh, cold and they're really not, if, if you could get there, you could get in to see the game because uh, it was hard to get to. And, mm-hmm. and, and so, but if you got there, there were tickets around, right? Cause there were just, so, 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 so uh, the people in there were really, I don't know, everybody was so psyched. And, uh, and the, because and, the Russians were just a machine. They were oh, oh yeah. Well, yeah, the setup is, yeah, the Soviet Union was the greatest hockey uh, team in the world. And remember, they could not have their players play in the NHL. So nobody's expecting uh, the USA to do anything but kind of show up and put up a good fight. Um, and uh, and I remember, you know, I remember in before that week, but the team, the USA team is good and they're winning. And they were, <laughs> the, the Olympic Village was later converted. It, it was built so that it could be converted to a prison afterwards. Oh, nice. There may still be a prison there. I don't know. Nice. And, and there was, so it was that. And then they set up like trailers on there, you know. So I remember going out there, going out, going out there. Yeah. And just, again, again, the access. Again, I remember going out and talking to these guys, you know, leaning, they were leaning up against the, the, the portable trailers or whatever and talk to them, you know, and, and Jim Craig, the goalie is saying, well, you know, I just want to, you know, try to do what I always do and, you know, see the puck and stop the puck. And I'm like, you know, he better be, he better, uh, you know, be ready to eat a lot of rubber. And I'm, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's going to be a romp. Soviets are going to roll. Well, to much to our surprise, of course, the USA hangs in there, hangs in there and hangs there. And holy crap, it's like, it's, you know, I think uh, Mike Rosioni scores a goal-head goal with mm-hmm. like 10 minutes to go. 10 minutes to go, right, right. What and was I that just, like when he scored? I, well, when he scored, you know, the building is just going nuts. And we're going, holy crap, you know, this is, uh, you know, it, it was, it, there was a lot of dramatics. The, the, the Soviet coach, who it turns out later, as Sergei Makarov told me and Igor Larionov and some of these other guys told me, they really hated their coach. Mm-hmm. They really, you know, that was part of the dynamic of this. He, he was just a taskmaster, bad guy. And he, and he pulls the goalie, their, their great goalie, uh, 
So uh, the, the place is going nuts. And um, that, Todd, those last eight, 10 minutes where it seemed like they took two hours, right? I later watched the whole game on video and it really was, there weren't many whistles. It was really like, eight minutes, you know, but we're there like, holy crap, holy crap. And, you know, you're really just kept shooting. Oh yeah. You know, oh, yeah. it's hard. I'm, yeah, I'm, a, I'm 27, 28 years old. And like, this is amazing, you know, and not realizing that 40 years later, I'm, that's still the most exciting thing I've ever witnessed. And, um, and then, you know, boom, it's over. We don't hear Al Michael say, you know, the miracles, but do you believe in miracles? Yeah. Uh, uh, but holy shit, they did it. And now, now we got to write this, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so what, so what was the feeling there? Well, the press conferences were on the, the arena is still right next door to Lake Placid high school. And, and the, and the, um, the working room was the high school gym. <laughs> really? That was the press center. We were writing on, that was the press room and we were writing on typewriters <laughs> and, 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 you know, feeding it into telecopters feeding it into, <laughs> and the, the press, uh, interviews were in the auditorium, the school auditorium. And, uh, you know, these guys come in and they're late, you know, where it's like, and then we go back into the, into the gym and I'm pounding, you know, and I had gotten to know a couple of the Soviet writers in that era, the Soviet journalists, they basically had to write what the, you know, government told them. And so, um, in the gym there, I run across this guy and said, so what are you, what are you going to write? You know? <laughs> after this and he says i have to talk to my editor right <laughs> and then so i saw him i saw him then like later that night i said so what did your editor tell you right uh president carter ordered the usa to win you know and if told the officials you know they had to make sure the usa would win you know <laughs> so that was the soviet uh, spin on the story well you were very fortunate to be there i mean it's really the uh the sports moment of american history the last 50 years and you were there to chronicle it you had great fortune and then four years later, you had great timing. You move out to California, yeah. to the Bay Area, just when the 49ers, the San Francisco 49ers dynasty is really in flight. Um, that must have been feeling fortunate, too, to show up. And there's there's Bill Walsh, the coach, and there's Joe Montana, the, right. the quarterback, and Jerry right. Rice. And I'm yeah. like, so all of a sudden, you're covering – one of the great dynasties in the NFL history. Yeah, that was like traveling with the Beatles every week, Todd. I mean, you know, they go to the hotels and, you know, people would be, I remember, uh, you know, <laughs> one hotel. In those days, you would stay at the same hotel as the, as the team. And, I mean, I walk in and the team would all be in one wing and it'd be heavily guarded. But I remember walking down a hall and there's these like five people sitting in the hallway. What are you doing? Well, we're Joe Montana might walk back here. We're going to get an autograph. And we're like, well, I got news for you. Joe Montana is not going to walk down the hall. Right? <laughs> not going to happen. You guys can, you know, God love you, but you can go home. And I go out to eat, have some drink, come back. They're still sitting in the hall. You know, it was, it was, it was just, uh, uh, you know, uh, that was a beloved team. And, and then, yeah, getting to know those guys. See, I'd known Bill Walsh because he had been an assistant on the Bengals staff to Paul Brown. Right. Right. And, Eight years uh, he was in Cincinnati. Yes, People, and he got, forget he, that. Yeah. yeah, he was, he was the offensive coordinator there and he got passed over for the head coaching job. Um, uh, a guy named Tiger, Tiger, Tiger Johnson. Johnson got the job instead. Mm -hmm. And Bill carried that chip on his shoulder the rest of his life. He really? thought, he thought Paul Brown had, um, had, uh, you know, dissed him and uh, that um, in terms of, first of all, not appointing him head coach, but also uh, there had been other jobs that, um, uh, you know, people had called Paul Brown about Bill Walsh and Paul had 
I talked to Mike Brown, Paul's son, about this later. And <clears throat> I said, you know, what was all about? He said, well, we didn't, you know, tell people not to hire him. We just said, this guy's kind of flaky. You know, mm-hmm. he's a flaky guy. He's from California. He's kind of flaky guy. You know, he not. And you know what? Bill was flaky. He was also brilliant. <laughs> right? yeah. So six years, six years after he got passed over for the Cincinnati job, he takes the Niners to the Super Bowl and they play Cincinnati. And they right? beat the Bengals. And they beat the Bengals. He beat the Bengals twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, or no, he beat the Bengals in 89. Yeah, 81 89. and 89. Yeah. 89, yeah, twice he beats right. the Bengals. And um, he, uh, you know, and he and I would talk about uh, Paul Brown and, um, and and how fortunate were all of us, right, to, to interact with that guy because he kind of invented modern pro football. But, you know, to Bill's, to Bill's view, it was like the guy that always had screwed me out of a, getting an NFL headshot. Do you really think that drove him a lot? Do you think that drove Walsh? Yes. I don't know what percentage of that. I mean, Bill was brilliant and uh, quirky and flaky. So give us an example of. uh, of Yeah. Well, you know, he was he was a brilliant guy. He was very insecure guy. He grew up on the east side of the Bay here in the the San Francisco Bay Area um, in a town called uh, Fremont and was uh, which is the blue collar side of the Bay. He went to San Jose State which is the big state school here, but it's not Stanford. It's not Cal. And, um, but Bill uh, liked to think of himself as a sophisticated guy. And he was in many ways, but he always kind of carried that. I'm just a guy from Fremont and San Jose state, you know, Mm. uh, and out to prove the world, you know, um, I'm, I'm not just a guy from San Jose state. And so he, he was very, very, uh, conscious of his image and, uh, and like, and, uh, the guys who worked for him just said like, if after a loss, you know, you couldn't talk to him. He just, you know, and I saw some of that. I remember they lost a game in Arizona on a Monday night and went in the, went in, I went in the coach's office afterwards and he was like, just drained white and just had his hands in his hands. And, and this is after mm-hmm. like, he's won Super Bowls, right? Right. But right. he just, he, um, was, was just always, uh, insecure. And I think, you know, some of it might stem from the, um, being passed over by Paul Brown, right? I mean, like it was always in the back of his head. So um, about two months, I, I, my last conversation with him was about two months before he died. Okay, he had uh, leukemia and uh, uh, we're, we're together and I'm, I'm actually interviewing him about some about San Jose State. Uh, and uh, at the end of it, you know, I close my notebook and say, Bill, you know, just want to say over the years, you've always been, uh, you know, very open and honest with me. And I appreciate that. And uh, in fact, we've had a, you know, a good professional relationship means a lot to me, blah, 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 blah. And he goes like, and he looks at me, he's like, you know, I'm not dying today. <laughs> I said, I know you're not dying today, but I just wanted to, to say that, you know, I said, you know, you know, I go back all the way to Paul Brown and, and then he starts talking about Paul Brown again. And I said, well, did Paul ever apologize to you for passing you over? Did you, you know, and he goes, no, he never did. He goes, well, he did sort of. I said, what do you mean? Well, after Paul, uh, after, excuse me, after Bill uh, uh, resigned from the 49ers, uh, he spent some time as an NBC analyst very briefly. He didn't like it. But he, right. And so at one point they asked him to go interview Paul Brown. Okay. Uh, it's some, I don't know what might've been a playoff game or something. That must've been interesting. So yes. So, um, they set it up. Paul Brown is being interviewed by Bill and, and, uh, the interviews concluded and they're, I don't know what they're taught, what the interview was, you know, it was about the game and Paul and, uh, you know, the Bengals and whatever. 
but they never bring up topic A, right? <laughs> it's like, why the hell did you pass me over for that job, right? That's not an elephant. That's yeah, a herd of yeah, but, but Bill never room. brings yeah. it up. But uh, Bill tells me, so the interview's over, and Bill starts walking out of the room, and Paul stops and points at him and says, Bill, I made a mistake when I didn't hire you. Wow. And, and Bill, I said, what'd you say? He says, well, Bill, I, I says, I told him, look, Paul, it's okay. Everything turned out. Okay. You know? Mm. Uh, and I said, well, that's an apology. And he looks at me, he was like, not a real apology. You know, <laughs> I said, oh, wow. well, it's kind that of, I deep. said, I said, did it mean anything to you that he said that? And he paused and Bill says, yeah, you know what though? It did. It did mean something. It did mean something. Mm. Tell us about Montana. You know, when I think about Joe Montana, here's one thing that comes to mind for me is I can't name you one quote ever uttered by Joe Montana. <laughs> yeah. And I mean oh, that no, as a tribute yeah, to yeah. him. Oh, no, he, well, first of all, he's, he was, he, he didn't care about any of that stuff. You know, uh, he actually was very available for quotes. It's just, yeah, you know, quoteless Joe. He, uh, but, but he would, he would, you know what he would do? he would, you'd say, what happened on that interception? And he would like, just explain, well, you know, the X receiver went this way and, and, you know, so detailed in the terminology, you couldn't really use the quote, right? But he would, he would be open to explaining what happened. And he, and there was one good quote he gave me once uh, about, because I was talking to him once about, um, you know, how difficult it is to play quarterback in the NFL and how, you know, he developed, you know, his ability to, kind of, you know, diagnose these things under really tense, you know, he was the master of the, of the two minute drill and all that, you know, and he said, you know, it's really not, it's not as hard as, at least for him, as, as you think, he says, it's like when you're, uh, you don't think about this when you're driving a car a lot, let's say you're a driver and you come to a busy intersection and you have to navigate that intersection. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but you know, mm-hmm. well, like right. he says, you know, you come and there's a, there's a car over here to your right. There's a car coming straight ahead at you. There's another car that may or may not stop coming this way. You want to turn this way. There might be a pedestrian walking across the street and you process all this in, uh, you know, seconds, right. To make your decision about where to steer the car and push. Mm-hmm. It's like that. It's like, you know, if you, if you do it uh, often, you know, practice it and well that it's like that when you're playing quarterback yeah but when you're driving a car you don't have these monsters trying to rip your no that's that's (laughs) that's that's one difference but you might have a you know truck bearing down on you but but yeah so you know he that's an interesting metaphor i've never heard of that i'm i'm sure he said it in a like such a detailed and whatever way that i couldn't exactly quote it (laughs) word for word because he was just not that kind of guy but he was you know that craziness of him and steve young both who are, I had, I thought I had pretty good relationships with. It got so nuts, Todd, that, you know, uh, uh, I guess I can tell this now, uh, you know, like Joe and I, I wasn't, you know, I was a columnist. I would show up twice a week there, right? Not every day like the guys, but, but, um, I got to know those guys and, um, Joe had, I remember Joe had a, and his wife had a kid right about the same time we did. And we talk about the babies and all that, but, but Joe would like pull me aside, you know, after practice. And again, this would never happen now. Right. And say, you know what Steve did? <laughs> Steve did this, 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 this. And then like the next day, Steve would say, uh, Mark, you know what Joe's telling 
people I did. You know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Sounds like high school or something. Yeah, I played dumb. Like, oh no, you know. Um, and I think to, I still don't think those guys are real close, but they, but I think they kind of come to terms with what that was all about. And it was really about Bill, there we are back to Bill Washington. Bill was playing them against each other because he thought it would make both mm. of them better with that dynamic. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today. Well, those great 49er teams played in one of the most god-awful places that I've ever covered a game in, and that's Candlestick Park. Just a dump of a stadium. And you were in that stadium in 1989 – when of all things, we had the A's and the Giants, the Bay Series, the A's and the Giants in the World Series. It's just before game three is going to begin. You're sitting, where were you I was sitting? In the, I was in the, you know, Bob Hunter talked about the auxiliary press boxes. And even though I was working a, a local, the, the press box, at, baseball press box at Candlestick was so tiny. Um, and so we were in the upper deck in the, basically in the stands with some tables set up. You've been there. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, I can remember who I was standing next to, the great Gary Noon from the Dayton. <laughs> There's another Dayton guy, Dayton. And, uh, it's always Dayton. <laughs> no, so I'm standing next to Dary, Day, Gary Noon. It's like, what, eight minutes before the you know, national anthem or whatever. And, yeah, the, the thing start. the whole stadium starts shaking. And Gary looks at me and goes like, what? Well, you know, I said, it's an earthquake. Don't worry. You know, don't worry. Well, no, it'll be over in a second or two. Right. Those are the experiences I'd had with earthquakes here. This one is not over in a second. It goes on and goes on and it's gone. And I look up uh, and I remember looking up to my left to where the football press box was way higher up. And the windows in the football press box are like, you know, jello. They're like bubbling in and out, bubbling in and out. And I I remember thinking in my head, if one of those, if those windows start popping out, because the place is full. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm 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 going all these calculations. If that po- those windows pop out, and this place is full, and you know, we're in trouble. We're in real trouble. And um, just about then, after I don't know, 12, 15 seconds, it does stop. And the weirdest thing, Todd, was, and I, so it stops. And the media reaction from the crowd is this lusty cheer. Yeah, you know, really? well, it's the Bay Area. Of course, oh, it's cool, man. <laughs> think about the the two Bay Area teams are playing in this stadium and they have an earthquake right before the two barrier teams. I mean, it's think of, I don't know. I'm not a mystical guy, but think about that. The whole season comes down to this and, and they have this earthquake and um, Gary's now the colors coming back to Gary's face and probably not. And uh, um, we, you know, we go down to the field uh, and the players are just milling around. And, uh, what's going on? The power's out. Um, and, uh, uh, finally, after, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, they said, well, we're not playing this game, right? Um, and I'm, uh, I am I had walked around in the stands. There was like a chunk of concrete that fell down in the right field. Uh, if you remember, there was a guy, 
I, I, I don't remember this seeing it's my eye, but I know I saw a video of it later. Some guy is up repairing a light bulb on the light tower as this. Oh yeah. He's like yeah. hanging yeah. on the light towers. It's swaying back and forth. Um, and uh, so finally they say it's, it's off. So I go to uh, down by the giants. We over at candlestick, you know, where those locker rooms were. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The right. players are. Yeah. And so the players are told like, look, the game's off. You guys should go home, but you better get out of here before the crowd, you know, disperses. So the players are in their uniforms, Todd, and they're, they're going out to the players' parking lot in their uniforms with their families. And uh, I'm talking to some of them, and I remember Robbie Thompson was a second baseman, and he's standing there, oh, yeah, and he's yeah. just telling me what it's like and, you know, what his thoughts are or whatever, you know, what his experience was. Willie Mays had been in the, in the equipment manager's office and comes out, and his was he was like – I've never been scared in this ballpark before, you know, they were great quotes. And, um, uh, some fan comes up to Robbie Thompson's, can I have your autograph? No, <laughs> no, no. Robbie Thompson no. just looks at them and like, you know, we just had an earthquake. right? Oh, God. You know, I'm trying to get out here with my family. Right. But fans are always going to be fans. Right. It was, yeah, it was yeah. an unforgettable night. And, uh, Think about I always it. say candlestick is my favorite ballpark, even though it's the shittiest ball because it, it held up during the earthquake time. Maximum weight on those girders, maximum weight, house is full, you know, biggest earthquake we have in the Bay Area in my lifetime. And the thing held up, you know, so how can I, how can I say otherwise? That it, I was going to say how, that the fact that the Candlestick Park did not fall to the ground and really have a horrible, horrible tragedy mm-hmm. is amazing because I had been in there and that place was it awful. was horrible. I, I don't, you know, I, some people say they miss it. They're lying. It was no, it was nobody awful. misses. You know, we have this beautiful new ballpark here. Uh, well, yeah, I want to. You know, the Giants went into a much, much nicer ballpark, sitting right there on the water, and you have become part of the legend of the San Francisco Giants Park because you are the man. And I think Leonard Coppett of the Oakland Tribune played a role in this too. But you guys, you know, you came up with this idea that beyond right field, the water should be named after Willie McCovey, right? Tell me about, tell us about how you came up with that. Well, I'll tell you the short version. Um, uh, For people to know, Willie McCovey, uh, you know, was a great Hall of Fame hitter, hit 521 home runs, um, and was was a more, actually more beloved player here in the Bay Area than Willie Mays. Um, who people here thought came from New York and was, you know, McCovey was their own. He'd, he'd grown up as a San Francisco giant. And uh, so they're building a new ballpark. Um, it's announced that they're going to uh, the, they're going to build a statue of Willie Mays uh, on the plaza behind home plate. And the address of the ballpark is going to be 25 Willie Mays Plaza. And, uh, and they're also, so in the, in the pre opening hype, they're talking, you know, that that's, part of it and also you're going to be able to hit home runs into the bay and so um again this is how things fall together so like uh the year before that they're building the ballpark the ballpark's under construction i'm with my kid we're going to the x games uh, which are at pier 39 um and we're driving over the lefty odul bridge uh, and I looked down and on that body of water, I'm like, well, that's not the bay. I don't know what that is. It's like this inlet. I don't know what, what it is, but it's not the bay. I'm going to call BS on the giants for that. And, uh, and like, so the next day uh, I'm at the ballpark and, uh, the giants are having some sort of ceremony, uh, honoring one of their playoff teams or something that McCovey had played on and they have all the players there, but McCovey's not there. And I'm going, where's McCovey? Well, he's not feeling great. 
Uh, he uh, he had, had some income tax problems and had gotten in trouble for that. He's kind of ashamed of that. And he, he just all that. I said, well, that's really a shame because he's, you know, part of this lore of this team. And so then um, uh, in the back of my mind, I'm remembering this thing with the water that my son and I had driven over. And, uh, uh, and so now we're in the lunchroom and I'm sitting there with a couple of guys in Leonard Coppett, who you mentioned. And I'm going like, Hey, is this the craziest idea? But you know, if they're going to name the home plate thing after Mays, they ought to do something with McCovey. They ought to put McCovey's name on, on that water out there. And uh, they could call it McCovey river, McCovey run, McCovey something. And Leonard says, McCovey Cove, it's alliterative, right? I'm going like, you're right, McCovey Cove. So uh, I end up writing. Teamwork, you and Leonard yeah, working so together. I, but I end up writing the column like, this is what should happen. And it's too bad. I bench, oh, and I went and talked to J.T. Snow, the first baseman of the Giants at that time. I said, what do you know about William McCovey? Well, I don't know a lot about him. I know numbers, <laughs> you know, but, you know, but, 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 you know, there was a different generation, right? And, right. and so yeah, think, well, yeah, here's yeah. another reason. So that people will remember who Willie McCovey was. And when kids come to the ballpark and their parents tell them who Willie McCovey, you know, this is a, and also Willie McCovey, great left-handed hitter, the ball's going over the right field wall would fall in that water. Right. And it makes sense. It all just fit. So I write this column saying, this is what the Giants ought to do. And San Francisco ought to do. They ought to name this McCovey Co. And nothing happens. <laughs> the column gets no, no response. Right? No, no, juice. no, no, except I get a phone call from Willie McCovey or is is actually his agent and says McCovey wants to have lunch with you so, okay mm. so your your policy is probably the same as mine hall of famer wants to have lunch with you you go have lunch with the hall of famer right oh yeah yeah i think so that's a good that's so a good call met up at his, uh, the country club he belonged to and he i, I won't sh- i i promised i would never share everything about that lunch but it was really special and he so I didn't, I'm wondering, like, is he pissed off about this idea? You never know with these guys, right? You don't know what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so I wrote it, wrote yeah. again. And, you know, we got a map and showed people where it was. And uh, lo and behold, like, after the second or third column, uh, you know, uh, Larry Bear, the Giants, one of the executive comes up, you know what? I think we're just going to do that. I think we're going to do that. I think we're going to name it uh, McCovey Cove. And uh, so they did. And um, it was, uh, it's. Uh, you know, I have I've had a lot of bad ideas in my life, but that was a good one. And I'm, I'm yeah, it, it makes me happy when I, and and the you know the bonus Todd was it it reconnected McGovey to the organization. You know, all of a right. sudden he was, was good, yeah right? he would show yeah. up at the ballpark a lot more. Uh, he you know it, it got him back involved with the Giants, and he became you know a beloved kind of fixture on the ballpark and. Um, that, that made me so happy, you know, and, uh, and he and I kind of developed a, you know, a, a nice relationship out of that, which led to, uh, one of my favorite little moments in my career, which is, uh, the, the Giants are having the all-star game and whatever year it was there. And there's, and they're having the home run hitting contest and, uh, McCovey's made the honorary captain of that. Right. Cause yeah, I think it's 2007. Okay. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so I asked McCovey, can I just follow you around that night? You know? He says, yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I'm following around that night. And so this is like an hour or so before the home run hitting contest. And we end up in uh, the equipment manager's office. Uh, Mike Murphy's the guy's name. So, and guess who? So it's this office, this kind of small office of the equipment manager, where a lot of players just like to hang out because Mike Murphy's a great guy, right? It's me. It's Willie McCovey. It's Frank Robinson. It's Willie Mays. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, I, and, and the equipment manager. And I'm like, 
I know, so I'm like, in this room, I totaled it up, and it was like a total of 1,767 home runs in that room or whatever. And I'm just <laughs> like, and me. And I'm like, well, this is, you know, who doesn't belong, right? And uh, I just sat back, and for like 15, 20 minutes, those guys just started, you know, telling stories. And uh, I'm thinking, how, what a lucky SOB I am, right? That, that right. Uh, right. this, you know, this idea I had about McCovey Cove ends up here. I am in this room with these three hall of fame three of the greatest home run hitters of all time. And, you know, I'm, and they're trusting me to, you know, if, if I'm with McCovey, I'm good. Right. And uh, yeah, right, that right. was a good column. <laughs> well, before we turn our attention away from baseball and wrap this up, I wanted to ask you about one guy who seemed to launch a lot of baseballs out into McCovey Cove and that's Barry oh, Bonds. He was not friendly with the media. We all know that. Uh, and uh, my attitude toward him was, as I told him, like, you know, I, I, I get paid the same whether you MF me or whether, you know, you want to answer my questions. And, and so it's okay, you know, just, you know, let me know if you're, you know, if you're available, fine. If you're not fine, but let's, you know, let's try to keep this professional. And, um, mm-hmm. Right. Um, and sometimes he did, and sometimes he did. He taught to me. He's just—I never felt animus toward him. I just felt he's just one of the weirdest guys ever. He, he and uh, I never felt sorry for him, but I felt like he um, was kind of a sad person um, in this respect. Barry, for some reason, just couldn't—he he just couldn't relate to people, not just the media. He couldn't relate to people the way you and I do or the way an average guy of any color could, you know, like in terms of having a conversation or whatever, it was just, everything was just off, just kind of, you know, and it was with with his teammates, you know, Um, you know, you could see it in the locker room. Yeah. Uh, You know, uh, first time I really tried to have a conversation with him and we did have some conversations later, but, but uh, spring training, 1993 he's with, he's joined the giants I show up in Scottsdale um, and uh, introduce myself and met to him at his, at his locker. Here's who I am. This is what I do. I promise not to bother you unless I really have a question I need answered. Uh, if you don't want to answer it, that's okay. Just tell me. But I can pay the same whether you whatever you do. And, but I think people are really interested in you, obviously. And so, I, I you know, it'd be great if – and today, uh, for the first column, I don't want to bug you that much, but um, I'd like to write about your time growing up as a little leaguer on the peninsula and, you know, everybody thinks Michael Jordan was this great natural athlete when he did have natural athletes, but even as a kid, he would go from playground to playground, finding the best game, finding the best game. He was obsessed. Right. And that's one reason he became a great player. I said, as a kid, you must've really been into baseball and, you know, love playing games. So if you could give me the name of your like little league coach or something that I could call and maybe get, you know, have some stories about that, you know, what do you say? He pauses. <laughs> he looks at me. He goes like, "Yeah, I'll I'll give you the name. I'll give you his name. He's six feet under the ground." He turns around, pivots, and walks away back. You know, toward the training room. Hmm. That was your first interaction. Yeah, and and I look, and the the guy sitting at the next locker, Matt Williams, third baseman. Yeah, looks up at me and goes. Better get used to it. That's our new outfielder. <laughs> no, that's our new outfielder. And uh, uh, and I'm thinking, well, it turned out the guy wasn't dead, right? 
you know, yeah. but he just very just liked to, he, he just didn't, he, uh, he couldn't, you know, you know, he, he, you know, one time he's at the, all, we're all at the all-star game in Cleveland, Todd. And he, uh, he does this really nice thing. He, he's, he's doing a something for, uh, blood, uh, bone marrow donation for, uh, uh, you know, there's this, there's this kid from Oakland that's there. Yeah, good story. Yeah, yeah, he's doing, doing a good, good, good yeah. thing and he's promoting it. And so, uh, after that presser's over, he goes back to the uh, National League locker room and he's the only guy there because all the other players are out. You know, Barry, Barry never did exercises or anything. He just, and, uh, so I said, Hey, I'd like to ask a few more follow up questions about that. And he goes, like, You're going to write something nice about me? And I said, well, Barry, my policy is when people do nice things, I do write nice things about them, you know? He goes, well, you know, you're, you, I said, well, what, I said, what's so weird about you, Barry? And this is true. You, there'll be a game where you hit three home runs and the writers will want to come down and talk to you about that. And you say, you know, tell us to F off or whatever and go talk to some other people. You know, I'm not into it today. I don't want to do, you know, we're going to deal with it today. So we do, we go talk to other people. Uh, but then when you like strike out two times and maybe to end a game or, you know, a playoff game, you know, he had famously, you know, especially in Pittsburgh struggled. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, and, but then you'll sit and talk for a long time about, uh, I messed up. I, you know, I let the team down. I, you know, I, I just really shouldn't, you know, that was just awful. I, I really taken it on personally and I'm really, Hey, what happened? And you'll go on and talk about that. But then, which, which is interesting, but then you'll complain like you guys only write about me when I do bad stuff. <laughs> no, it was your fault. Yeah. Well, you know, well, mm. if you're talking at length after you do something bad, we're kind of going to write more about that than yeah. when you do something good and tell us to go off. Right. You know, it's, mm. I don't understand that part of your personality. He goes like, well, you don't know the way I grew up. I said, well, I know a little bit about the way I grew up. You way I grew up. Let's talk about it. He goes, oh no, I'm not going to go there. I said, well, I want to help people understand, you know, you know, why you're that way. He goes, you're going to write whatever you want anyway. I said, well, that's, yeah, that's my job. Uh, but I want to hear saying, well, you know, you, you know, you wouldn't really understand. I said, I'm here. I got my notebook. I'm here. Well, nah, I'm just, I'm not, not going to go there, you know? Yeah, I just always found I was always felt perplexed in my interactions with him when he would come through Cincinnati um, with the Giants or the Pirates, and it just I remember one time I went up to him early in the season. He's just sitting in his locker, and I said, "I'm just going to go up and ask for a one on one, just for the hell of it." Yeah, I'm, I was kind of curious about what kind of bad response I could get. Well, I got the exact opposite. He starts talking, and he kept talking, and he and I kept talking, and it went on for like 20 minutes. And I realized I looked over, and the pack of San Francisco writers were all looking over at my yeah, like who's this guy? Where, where I'm standing with him, basically like who is this yeah. guy? And what I realized is Bonds is just messing with those yes. guys. That's Ex why he's yes, talking to exactly. me. He doesn't know me from Adam. He doesn't care who I am. He wants to mess with those San Francisco writers. Right. So he's giving me twenty it minutes. Was, it had to wear him out, Todd. You know, it's, I think I think I don't know what you. I believe it's it's more you use up more energy. It's it's harder to be in a hole than a good guy, you know, because you got to have this thing in your head calculated like that. And I've always was curious about the idea of what drives these people. And you mentioned it with Bill Walsh yeah. and the idea of like uh, being overlooked and how he never really let that go. I was always fascinated by what these, the people who are so great at what they do in athletics, 
What is it that drives him? And that's what I mean by dealing with bonds. Everybody knows he was difficult, but I was always wondering, why do you have to make it right. difficult? Yeah. Uh, and, and the short answer is he thought he had to be that way to be a great player. And maybe that's true. You know, I mean, who knows? That's all they right. owed. But you know what? He cared a lot about what people thought about him. You know, this thing with the steroids. I think I'm, it's human nature. They all, we all do. You know, it's like, do. like, uh, you know, whatever people think. No, he cared a lot. I covered every minute of his perjury obstruction of justice trial. And, um, you know, it, was, it came apparent to me through the testimony uh, of all these people, you know. You know, why would Barry even care, right, whether people cared whether he used steroids or not? He cared because, um, you know, he was trying to prove that he didn't, right, <laughs> mm-hmm. when he did. And uh, but he wanted – and so they found, him, they found him guilty of obstruction of justice. He appealed it. I mean, this had to co- – I, I knew his attorney. This had to cost him in into seven figures, Todd, to, def- to, to appeal this – obstruction of justice uh, clause that, and he got it overturned. So in his mind now, you know, I, he won. I, he won. Yeah. Right. And that's all that mattered in the end. Yeah. Maybe. So yeah. I don't know. Well, he, he wouldn't let us go on the ride with him, but Mark Purdy, you grew up in Salina, Ohio, population 7,000 <laughs> and you went well, into a on. career well, 43 years. You traveled to five continents, 14 Olympics, more than 30 Super Bowls. We didn't even talk about Super Bowls, really. It's an amazing amount of places and events and people that you covered, the characters. And, uh, you know, you were always great for taking us on the flight. So you never knew as a sports writer where you no. were going to be or how you were going to get no. there. No. Um, but I'll wrap it up with this. I was on another Olympic bus one time, and I think we were in Greece. And I was sitting on the bus sharing a seat with you. And not to get too uh, weepy or anything, but I was just thinking to myself, how did some kid from Kentucky end up in Greece doing exactly what he wanted to do because of the guy sitting next Uh, to him? Well, And it was a real special moment. That's really sweet of you to say that. Thank you. You know, uh, we were lucky to be born at the right time to have the right intersection with the career where we could have moments like that. You know, um, I, I am humbled by you saying that, I guess is, that's all I can say. So, uh, but you, you know, you held up, you held up your own, sir. You're, uh, you know, I still have some clips, some Todd Jones clips somewhere that I, you know, if uh, I like something. They come with crayons. Remember newspapers? <laughs> yeah, remember those? They're grocery. good kindling, right? Know, good I, kindling. You know, if somebody wrote something good, I, you know, I still have. Some. All right, I'm going to end this love fest before the Board of Control Sports Riders gets rid of us. But, uh, but thank you. Uh, thank you in all seriousness for a great career and your friendship. And thank you for taking us on a ride in this episode. Sure. Thanks for listening to Pressbox Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcast or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Sarah Wilgroup, and her audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on.
Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!